Hey, I want to welcome you to our worship experience here at New Life. And we're so glad that you're a part of this online. Uh, I will tell you this, that my hope and my prayer is that in these coming weeks, maybe these coming months, you'll, you'll move from just that online place of watching and come join us live. Every Sunday at uh, 9 and 10.30, we have our live services, and there's something about being together, something about gathering together that is powerful. So I hope you'll come and, and join us in that. Don't forget, like we said at the very beginning, there are resources down below, and uh, you can just scroll and you can find note-taking sheets, all those kinds of things. Uh, if you download our app, there's even more available to you, and I hope, I hope you'll do that. Uh, while you're here on this YouTube channel, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. That's one of the ways that you can be notified. You'll get little uh, notices when anything is coming up, uh, any new videos that we have, our weekend services. So subscribe and you can be part of kind of the normal sphere of that. Well, hey, we're, we're kicking off a brand new series uh, and it's called God Is. And what we're going to be looking at over these next weeks is taking the where the Bible shows these names of God. And God's given different names through scripture. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that. Uh, but to begin to look at how they reflect his character and who he is. And I think it, it's so needed for us today. I would even say especially what we've been through over these past 18 months to two years that have been so challenging. We have to be reminded again, oh, he's a God who's good and he's a God who's faithful and he's a God who provides. So we're going to be diving into all that as we look at these names of God. Now we know that names are important. It's how we identify one another. Now, most people today don't name their children generally based upon what a name means, uh, but, but more because it was a family name or uh, because of the originality of it or sometimes because you heard it somewhere in a TV show or a movie or a song and you just, you just liked it. And, and popular names we know change all the time, but, but we tend to not go back to the meaning of names. So my name, David, means beloved. And, and yet, I don't think my parents were thinking of beloved when they, when they saw that name, though hopefully I'm, I'm loved by them. I know that I am. But that thing of uh, the name ha came from a different place. It, it came from, I've always liked that name or a good connotation to it. But the truth is, is that names carry weight and meaning. Now, again, if you're a parent and you have kids, do you remember the name conversations? Remember that? When, when you know this baby is coming and you start thinking like, well, what are we going to name him? Or what are we going to name her? And uh, maybe you already knew it was a boy or a girl, or maybe you went old school and you just was going to see, well, hey, <laughs> whatever we get. And so you got boy names and you have girl names all picked out when this baby comes. But I want you to think back when you first started to think about names and you would start throwing things out. And maybe, uh, I know for us, we would sometimes watch the credits at the end of, the, of a movie and we would see all these names of people who, you know, had some small part and maybe they were in the production team, but we'd see all these names. Oh, I like that name and that name. And it's pretty common for us to do those kinds of things. But do you remember that moment when, uh, when your spouse liked a name? They said, well, what about this? And as soon as you heard that name, it was like, nope, because I went to school with someone with that name and 
I did not like them at all. And so it's just like, I don't want my kid named after that. Because names can bring up feelings and they can bring up emotions based on our experience. I mean, think about names that are just off limits. Like, like nobody's naming their, their child Hitler. You don't see anyone naming their kid Satan. You know, we, nobody goes to those places because they represent something so negative. They stir up so many things that you wouldn't want that association uh, just because of the names, because names matter. Now, in, in the Bible, there are more than 80 compound names for God. Now, I'm going to explain what that means in a, in a few minutes, but it was the core of who God was with another characteristic. And today we're going to look at this core name, that original name for him. So why are there so many names for God? Well, the truth is, is this so we can understand more fully his character and his attributes. See, when it comes to God, one name doesn't fully contain who he is. So throughout the Bible, his names help us understand who he is more, his personality and even his promises. He is one, but he expresses himself as Elohim in the Hebrew, which means that he is the creator and the designer of the universe. He's also uh, addressed in scripture as Adonai, which again, these are all Hebrew names. And it, that name means Lord and Master. And sometimes when all of our problems seem insurmountable, he promises his peace as Jehovah Shalom. And when we're finally ready to surrender, we'll praise him as Jehovah Jireh. And that name literally means the Lord our provider. Listen to what King David wrote in Psalm 9. He said, those who know your name trust in you, O Lord. Do not abandon those who search for you. Those who know your name trust in you. So these names of God matter. Now in the Old Testament, to do something in someone's name or to call upon someone's name was, was serious business. It wasn't just a, a lightly held thing that it's like call upon the name of the Lord or call upon the king. You know, we just look at those and think, oh, well, you know, that was a nice idea to kind of go to them and ask for something. But when the Bible directs us to do this, to call upon the name of the Lord, we're actually inviting God to come right into our situation, to step right into the circumstances. And so it was a very important and deep thing to, to call on that name. You were, you were literally inviting that, that characteristic, that personality to have an impact now we read in Genesis 4 that it didn't take long in the history of mankind for people to finally turn to God. And in Genesis 4 it says this, at that time people first began to worship the Lord by name. Now I want to pause here for a second because as we begin this series, I kind of want to lay a little bit of a foundation for you. But there's something really critical in this. Even as you read that last verse, you'll, you'll see that the word Lord is capitalized. Now, I don't know what translation or version of the Bible that you're using. There's, there's obviously different ones out there. Sometimes the word Lord in the Bible is all capital. And sometimes it's called, with, it's, it's called an intercap. And so maybe the L is capitalized and the other letters seem smaller. But, but look in your Bible. Is the R and the D actually a capital letter, just smaller? That's just a typeface that looks a little bit different. In, in fact, in 
I think just about every Bible, when you read that word Lord, it's going to have a different look and feel to it. Whether, again, it's capitalized or a different typeface, whatever it might be. And here's what you need to know. That's done on purpose. There's a reason for that. And so whenever you see that word Lord in those kinds of letters, it's the Hebrew word for God that we're actually going to look at today. It's the foundation of this. And it's the, it's the name Yahweh. Yahweh. This name is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament alone. And this name, Yahweh, was considered so sacred that tradition tells us that when the scribes, as they were translating and, and copying scripture from generation to generation, when they would write that name, tradition tells us that they would take a bath beforehand and then they would destroy the pen that they used afterwards because that name was, was holy, it was special, it was set apart. And the Jewish people held this name in such honor and, and awe that when they would come to it in their reading, they wouldn't speak it out loud. They, they, they wouldn't pronounce it at all. In fact, it was so revered that it was only said out loud, out loud once a year on the Day of Atonement and then only by the high priest in the most holy place of the temple. Now, as a way to set this name apart from every other names, when the scribes would write this, instead of writing the full name out, they would only use the consonants so that people wouldn't inadvertently speak this, this name because it was too holy to do that. And so they would write Y-H-W-H. And you've maybe come across that or seen that at one time, and that's this name, Yahweh. But here's the crazy thing. If you weren't supposed to say it, if you weren't supposed to pronounce it at all because it was too holy and too revered and too set apart, then if you were reading scripture out loud, which is what they would do, like what would you say when you came to those four letters? What would you say when that was set apart in, in scripture? And that was the problem. And so they would, they would come to that and it's like, well, well, what do we do here? So I don't know who came up with this, but they came up with this idea and it's all through scripture, they would take these four letters, the Y-H-W-H, and instead of saying that name, they would put the vowels of another word for God, which is Adonai, which is a more s simple uh, kind of Lord and, and master, not the Lord, but Lord. And so they would put the vowels of Adonai with the consonants of Yahweh. And if you put those together, you would, you would then pronounce it Yahovah. And that's where we get our word Jehovah. So when you've seen that, Jehovah isn't really a name of God. It's Yahweh and Adonai put together. But it really comes down to this powerful, holy name of God, Yahweh. Now, why is this name thing even important? And why do we even dive into this? Because part of our problem today is that we've become, I think, in some ways too casual with God. Yes, he calls us his friends and he invites us to be part of his family. But there's almost this over-familiarity with and we've kind of diminished God a little bit. Maybe even use his name or his presence flippantly. God's name has become more part of our slang and often more used to swear than it is to pray, and we've somehow diminished that. 
Back in the 1950s, there was a guy named J.B. Phillips, and he wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And in it, he wrote this. He said, the trouble with, with so many people is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. And when I read that, I thought, man, if that was true 70 years ago, it is really true today. Is God big enough for the challenges that we face? Is God big enough for the the cultural issues and the problems that we face? Is God big enough for the personal struggles in my own life? And that maybe because for many of us, our view of God hasn't changed a whole lot from maybe when we were little kids. Now, I know we still approach him with a childlike faith that we, we believe and we put our trust in him, but sometimes we've just diminished God to being, you know, either the one with the lightning bolts or more like a Santa Claus or just like, a, like an old man. I mean, we, we, we've categorized and, and almost made a caricature of God sometimes, and really what it comes down to is we've put God in a box, and our box is small. We have shrunk him down so much that our thoughts about him are not even close to what the Bible teaches, not even close to the reality of who he is. And I think sometimes what we've done is we've, we've tried to form God in our image, in the image we want, instead of fully living out what it means to be made in his image. So here's my challenge for you today. And over these next weeks, as we are in this God Is series, are you ready to take God out of your box of preconceived ideas? In order to see the vastness and the bigness of God, we we need to understand more about his character and who he really is. His majesty, his omnipotence, his kindness. And we find that in his names. And over these next weeks, leading all the way up to Thanksgiving, we're going to week by week see more and more of who he really is. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. Simple to get there. The very beginning is Genesis. The very next book is Exodus. And in Exodus 3, we're introduced to the meaning, the majesty, and the mystery of this name of God, Yahweh. Now, this particular name comes straight from God himself. And it's my prayer that when we're finished, we will never put God in a box again and we'll learn that life is not primarily about who we are, but it's about who God is. In other words, he's God and we're not. And in order to even begin to get a glimpse of his greatness, we're going to have to break God out of those tiny constricting places that we have tried to put him. So here's the background to Exodus chapter 3, and then I'm going to give you some blanks to fill in. Moses has been tending his father-in-law's sheep now for about 40 years out in the wilderness after he had killed an Egyptian uh, as he had seen him mistreat a fellow Israelite. And as he's been in this exile, as he's been out in the wilderness, um, the people are still in captivity. And he has been separated now for all of these decades. And yet God is now getting ready to call Moses to the task of leading God's people out of their bondage in Egypt. And Moses is struggling. He's struggling with this whole idea. And as Moses was kind of struggling and moping around on a mountain, he looked up and he saw a bush that was on fire and did not burn up, right? You're probably familiar with that story of the burning bush. And he decided to go over and to take another look. 
And when he got to the bush, uh, in verse four, it says that God called out, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, he said, here I am. And, and God told him, don't come any closer. He goes, I want you to kick off the sandals and, that you have because the place you're standing is holy ground. And Moses not only unlaced and took off his sandals, it says he also covered his face because he was, his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, Moses probably liked his sandals. He'd probably been wearing them for years. And like most of us, when we get a good pair of shoes and we break them in, we like them because they're comfortable. They fit us. And it's like, this is just, I I like standing in these shoes. But God calls him to step out of his comfortable place, to leave the comfort zone, and to begin to step in to what was really important, to understand God's call, and even more than that, to understand who God really is. So write this down for number one. The first is this. We're going to begin to see that our God is personal. He's personal. The first thing we see about Yahweh is that while he is holy, he is not separate. He is personal. He knows all about our struggles and he knows all about our situations. He's not out there somewhere But he knows our needs. He knows your needs and he knows mine. Whether you write them down, whether you verbalize them to anyone, he knows you. Now I want you to listen to what he tells Moses about the people. Now remember, Moses has been gone for 40 years and even he doesn't know the depths of what God is telling him. So look at verse 7 and 8 on Exodus chapter 3. It says, then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe you think, well, okay, so there were some things happening, but understand what what God, what this Yahweh is speaking to Moses. He's saying, I'm seeing what's going on. I've heard the cries. I've watched it unfold. I'm aware of what's happening. He is, he's not just somehow, you know, living up in that throne somewhere, but he's, he's here with us. He sees their suffering. He sees our suffering. He was moved by what they were experiencing in the misery, and he's moved by ours. And as God hears the cries of his people, he, he becomes concerned, and he, and he moves in that concern through what they're going through. And he does the same for us. He's moved with concern and compassion over what you are facing, what I'm facing. And here's what you need to know with that. He's not annoyed by it, and he's not bothered that, that we're crying out to him. He's moved by it, and he welcomes it. So back when my kids were little, uh, there were, we still tell this story around our house. I was painting our bedroom, and Gina was gone. And uh, so at the time, we just had our, uh, had our, our two older kids. And uh, I was, again, painting in the room. They were in the living room, and they were goofing around and, and watching stuff. And then, you know, one of them would start 
crying or yelling or whatever, and I'd come out and say, well, what's going on? And they'd say, well, she did this or he did that, and I'd have to kind of solve it. And so I was getting more and more frustrated trying to do this job, trying to do this work, while, you know, I'm trying to watch the kids, but I'm I'm really just wanting them to, to, you know, be quiet and do those things. So I'm in there painting, and all of a sudden, man, there's just like screaming and crying. And so I am frustrated. So I walk out and it's like, what is going on here? You know, that, that parent when you've just hit the, the end of the rope and it's just like, ah, I'm just so frustrated. And my son is, is crying. It's like, what's wrong? What, what, what are you guys doing this? And he pulls his hand down and there's this gash in his head that's just bleeding like crazy. And I came in frustrated about the crying, completely unaware of the injury and the pain that was going on. Now, my son was okay. We ended up in the emergency room. He had some stitches. And uh, to this day, you know, he's okay, mostly. No, he's okay. Uh, But it was just one of those things of my frustration kind of overrode the actual pain that was going on. But can I tell you this? God is never unaware of your struggle. He's never annoyed that you're crying out because he knows you personally. He knows what makes you tick. He knows the concerns of your heart. And he's for you. Look at what, look at what Jesus taught us about our God who is personal in Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory wasn't dressed as beautifully as they are. Now catch this. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today, and thrown into the fire tomorrow. He will certainly care for you. And then Jesus says this, why do you have so little faith? And I don't believe Jesus was shaking his finger. I don't, I don't think Jesus went, why? Why, don't you, why do you, is your faith so small? I think Jesus looked at them with compassion and grace and love. And it's like, oh, if you only knew this God who is personal, if you only could trust him, your faith would expand and grow because he knows you and he's got you. He doesn't just care for birds and wildflowers. He cares for those and imagine how much he cares for you. That's the personal nature of God. The second thing is this, is that our God is right here, right now. In verse 11, Moses tries to, to bail on this assignment, uh, claiming that he's, he's just a nobody, right? Now, th- now, this is in Exodus 4. So we're kind of bouncing between Exodus 3 and 4. And, and Moses feels incapable. Like, I, I can't do that. And he feels unworthy. And in the next chapter, Moses tells God that he's not eloquent enough to, to speak to Pharaoh in, in the 10th verse of Exodus 4. And he's just like, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. It just just isn't going to work. And in Exodus 4.12, here's what God says to him. He says, now go. 
and I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. Moses is freaking out by by what he was being asked to do, but God wanted him to know that he would be with him. And Moses is trying to figure out all of the kind of worst case scenarios, right? What if no one listens to me? What if I go to your people and say, you know, the God of the fathers has sent me. And then they ask, well, what's his name? What in the world do I tell him? Like, like, how do I answer this? How do I respond to this? And Moses is wondering out loud why God's people would listen to him. So he's asking God, God, would you show yourself to me? Give me more. And in a way that God had never done before, God begins to reveal something to him, his name. Now the Egyptians had multiple gods, all with names, but, but what is our one true God? What does the holy God go by? Moses knew that God existed, but all he knew was that he was the God of his forefathers. And he, he needed a, a title. He needed something that would carry some weight with the people he was going to confront. And it's interesting at this point that God doesn't tie himself down with a single name. All he tells Moses is that he is who he is. Here's what he says in Exodus 3.14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And that I am who I am, that's this name Yahweh. I am the one who was pre-existent, the one who has eternally been present, is also present with us right here, right now. He's existed in eternity past, and he will exist in eternity in the future, but he is fully present right now. Think about that. The same God who worked in history was speaking to Moses. God delivered in the past, and because of who he is, he will deliver again. The God who has always been is active right now. In the book of Isaiah, God says this, You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God, and there never has been, and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord. And you see, it's in all capitals. It, would, it truly reads this way. I, yes, I am Yahweh, the great I am, and there is no other savior. Here's what I want to tell you. Everything is dependent upon God. There is creation and there is the creator. Nothing more. And the created, that's you and I, find our purpose only in a relationship with the creator, with the God who is right here, right now, with this Yahweh. And that may sound strange to you to be using like a a Hebrew name and a Hebrew word for this, but it encapsulates this in one word. We could just say, he is the great I am. And it's we, it doesn't even seem to fit in our, 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 our parts of speech and our language. It's like, no, I don't think the tenses are right on that. But it's the God who was, who is, and who is to come. He is everything. And he is personal. And he's here right here, right now. See, we come to him and 
when we start realizing the immensity of who God is and his presence, we could almost turn this into a prayer saying, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, you have always been, you always are, and you will always be because you are the God who is with me right now. Yes, you are who you are, and you are everything and anything that I will ever need. It's coming to a different place of recognizing with, with awe and splendor this God who has come to be with us, in us, to lead us. It changes my perspective about all that I face, about the things that are going on in the world, the things that are going on in my life, because God knows me and he's with me. The last part of this is that our God is a promise keeper. Three different times in Exodus 3 and once at the end of chapter 2, God goes back and recounts the fact that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he is a promise keeper. If you flip back a little bit to Exodus chapter 2, right at the very end, it says this in verse 24, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you've ever read anything through the, if you've read through the Old Testament or you've done, you'll see those, those names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the, the patriarchs, the, the, the forefathers. And you'll see that over and over again because God made covenants with each of those, but not just to them, but also to the generations that follow. And in this passage in, in uh, Exodus, God is reminding Moses, he's reminding them that he is a God who's faithful to keep his promises. It's just who he is. He's not going to promise what he won't deliver on. That it just isn't even, in his, isn't even in his character. And this whole idea and power of a covenant is all through Scripture. God made a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, promising that he would, he would never again destroy the whole world with a flood. In his covenant with Abraham, God promised a blessing to him and to his descendants. In God's covenant with David, God declared that one of David's descendants would be the, the heir to the throne. And it was fulfilled when Jesus, who was from the line of David, was born in Bethlehem. Now, today, we're more familiar with contracts than with covenants, right? Have you ever bought a house? Have you ever bought a car? Have you ever signed a lease for an apartment or something like that? These can be kind of scary moments for us, right? This, whoever it is, a lender or whatever, they put this big stack of papers in front and now there's all these little post-it notes, sign here, sign here, sign here. Have you ever done that? And you're going through and there's this part of you that's going, I hope I'm signing the right thing. I hope I'm not getting ripped off. Now, some of you are incredibly wise and you go to your attorney and you do those things. Most of us, we're just trusting this person who's leading us through it. As we sign our name, as we put our commitment behind this contract, and sometimes there's a little bit of a fear in that. But covenants actually carry more weight and more importance. But rather than stirring fear, covenants are done in relationship and they're based on commitment. So there's this similarity between 
covenant and contract, there are differences. So real quick, and we're heading towards an end here, but know this, that covenants are, first of all, permanent, which you think that may stir up actually more fear in you until you know who you're doing the covenant with, that it's actually binding you together in relationship and love and grace. A covenant is a permanent arrangement where contracts often have an end date. Covenants are complete. They're total. A contract usually just involves one aspect. So when you sign a lease for a car, it has to do with that car and your financial responsibilities with it. While a covenant encompasses all that I am. So again, that can make you feel like "Ah," it's a little more fearful until you know who you're in covenant with. And the invitation, again, is one of grace and love and relationship. It's like, I don't want to get out of that. I'm not trying to just be partway in on that. I am in fully. Covenants involve all of us. And the last thing, and this is the challenge of that, is that covenants are costly. There was often a sacrifice connected to covenants in the Old Testament. And these sacrifices were a visual and a visceral reminder. And and here was the statement around a covenant. In fact, the Old Testament phrase is to cut a covenant. And it had to do with that sacrifice. And what was implied by it is this, if I break this, if I go back on the covenant, either party, may it be to me as was done to this sacrifice. And that was a That was a serious thing, right? And God says, when I make a covenant, when I make a promise, I will keep it. When When I give my name, you can count on me. In Psalm 105, David wrote this, For though a thousand generations may pass away, he, God, is still true to his word. He has kept every promise he made, to Abraham and Isaac. See, it goes on to those forefathers. Those covenants were made and God has proven faithful again and again and again because why? He's personal, he's with us and he keeps his promises. And when we begin to catch a glimpse of him, our view of him should enlarge. Our perspective should be he is is stronger and more majestic Our worship of him should be filled with more passion and more awe. And if you really want to have that small box that we've put God in just kind of blown away, then think with me about what Jesus said about himself. Jesus took this majestic name of God, this name Yahweh, and he wrapped it in the humility of servanthood, offered himself as payment for our sin, and made a way for us to see God's goodness and God's glory. Here's what Jesus said in John 8. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. And the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, now get this. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. He used that same name, I am. Now the religious leaders went nuts. They're just like, you can't say that. That's, but we look at it in English and think, well, that's, 
that's not how you should say it. I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, you should say, I was. But he's using this name, I am. Now, here's what's crazy, and I'll end with this. On eight different occasions, Jesus used this same phrase, I am, to define who he is and describe what he came to do. See, Jesus, Jesus is God, and he's the one who is personal, and he's the one who's with us right here, right now, and and he's the one who is faithful and keeps his promises. And so Jesus came and said, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the gate, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the way, and I am the true vine, and I am the alpha and the omega. I am the resurrection and the life. This is who God is. He is the great I am. And he's here for you and for me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that when we doubt, when we wonder, we, we walk through the challenges and difficulties, God, I pray that even today we would recognize that you are the great I am. You are the one with no beginning and no end. You're the one who's personal. You're the one who's, who's powerful. You're the one who is here with us right now in this moment. You're the one who keeps his promises and is faithful to your covenant. God, again and again and again. And I, I just pray, God, for each of us as we look out into the world and we look out into our own situations and we sometimes wonder that we would be once again reassured once again on solid ground, that you are the one who is for us. You are the great I am. You are Yahweh. You are Jehovah. And we can trust you. Lord, we thank you. We give all this to you in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us for our worship experience today. And uh, I hope that you'll continue to take steps of faith. And through this week, as you're facing difficult things, you'll come back and go, hold on, hold on. I'm trusting in the great I am who will never fail me. Hey, have a great week. I'm praying for you. God bless.